This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, hi, uh, welcome very much, Professor Wenkert. I'm so delighted to have you on the New Books Network Anthropology Channel. And we're here to discuss your wonderful, wonderful book, uh, At the Limits of Cure. It's an honor to be in conversation with you. Um, maybe if we just begin the conversation with a sort of classic uh, in the classic anthropological tradition of arrival, but your arrival into anthropology, so your own intellectual biography, how you came to anthropology, how to came, how you came to medical anthropology, how you came to study South India, um, and then we can also discuss how you came to TB, and because that's also an interesting route because you came via HIV, and so just we can talk about how you came to anthropology and to the subject of your book. Sure. And um, first of all, thanks so much for having me here and talking about the book. Um, I'm really excited to have this conversation. Um, yeah, you know, I have such a hard time with origin stories of any sort. Um, things always seem to begin before they've actually begun. And or perhaps afterwards, it's hard to get a sense of when something really starts. But I think my own kind of trajectory into anthropology happened maybe in a kind of funny way. So I was an undergraduate quite lost. You know, I was taking court. I started off thinking I would study biochemistry. Um, I veered through psychology and then queer studies. And I just really didn't quite know what I wanted to focus on because I, I found everything very interesting. And I have this sense that anything you study, if you study it, if you go deep enough, it becomes fascinating. It, it, it becomes alive for you. Right. And a friend of mine was taking anthropology courses with Lisa Malky at Stanford. And she said, you should take this course. It's about children and the politics of culture. And, you know, I had no specific interest in children, but I also had, was not interested in children. So I said, why not? Um, and my friend said to me, you know, anthropology is this thing where you can study anything you want, right? It's kind of a grab bag. There's no, there's no kind of boundary about what constitutes a proper anthropological object. And I mean, that's not the way she put it. She said, you can basically study whatever you want, travel the world. And I said, okay, that sounds exciting. <laughs> So I took this course, and this course just really changed the way I think about things. You know, um, the kind of range of readings, the the depth of conversation, um, and you know, uh, Lisa Malky is an amazing teacher, and so it just really opened my eyes and made me kind of question everything, but also think how how broadly one can can think and read. Right? Um, there wasn't this sense that you know, if one studies psychology, the proper domain is 
the mind or the psyche. If one studies biochemistry, the proper domain is biochemical processes. But in anthropology, it felt like one could study the psyche or biochemical processes or tuberculosis, as the case might be, right? So um, that really just kind of expanded what I thought was possible as a scholar, as a reader, as a thinker. Um, and then I decided to go to graduate school because uh, maybe like many other folks, I wasn't sure what else to do with myself. And, and I, I knew I liked to read. I knew I liked to write. And so I thought, well, if I can keep doing this for forever, that seems like a great thing to do. So I applied to graduate school and began working with Lawrence Cohn at UC Berkeley. Um, and then I really struggled again, trying to figure out what would be my project, right? And so I had begun working on HIV in India as an undergraduate for my honors thesis. And, you know, um, I thought what I would do is focus on the Gates Foundation. And the Gates Foundation at that point was investing millions of dollars in HIV prevention work in India and across the world. But India was really meant to be a kind of um, a test site, a kind of catalytic uh, place where you could, you know, show how effective prevention work could be. That was their kind of motive. And so I, I, you know, I went to the Gates offices in Seattle. I also went to meet them in Delhi. I went to various projects in Bangalore and Chennai. And, you know, I found myself very quickly discontented with the, with the kind of field work I was doing. Uh, you know, we talk a lot about kind of what topics people are interested in, what questions they're interested in. But there's also this question of what kind of field work suits you, what kind of research suits your style, your mode, the kind of person you are, so on and so forth. And I found myself faced with these, you know, largely um, consultants from companies like McKinsey who are working for Gates and who would basically say the same things to me over and over. It's as if they all had, they were all given some sort of script. I don't think they were given a script, but I think it's as if they had a script and they were all able to say the same things, right? And it was very much what they would discuss was, um, you know, everything became a question of value added or it became a question of, you know, cost benefit or, you know, all the kind of the kind of language of neoliberalism was uh, deeply kind of um, embedded in everything they said and they couldn't really think beyond that or they didn't necessarily want to. And part of it is that, of course, a lot of these folks were not South Asia experts. They were not public health experts. They were consultants and consultants have this capacity or so they believe to do anything to fix anything, to apply their their uh, infinite toolkit to any and all problems in the world. And so I found this incredibly frustrating. And I thought to myself, I can't seem to have any interesting thoughts or conversations here. Basically, I feel like we're stuck in this closed circuit loop. Um, so I kind of uh, decided to move to the side a bit. And instead of focusing on prevention and on gates, I thought I would look at treatment work. And so I started working in this small HIV hospital in Chennai in South India. And I thought, okay, treatment, maybe this is a little bit more interesting. Maybe we can escape from this kind of closed circuit of, of neoliberal language and find something else. And, you know, uh, part of the problem with studying HIV in India, especially at that point, which is, I think, um, I think I began around 2005, 2006, and, you know, moving forward through the 2000s is that there were so many people doing it. And so you again felt that you were encountering the same arguments, the same um, forms of thought over and over again. Um, 
And so I was in this hospital trying to figure out, you know, what, what else is there to say? Is it, do I need to be here? Do I need to tell the story? And what story is that? Um, and what really struck me was the kind of regularity with which people would talk about how HIV was a manageable, livable, chronic condition, right? That one could, if one took their medication daily, you could live a totally normal life. Um, I thought of this a bit uh, almost as if it's like a gospel of normalcy, right? Take your medication every day and you'll be fine. You'll live an absolutely normal life. Um, And there was no need to kind of die prematurely. Um, And yet what I would see quite often is patients coming to the hospital in extremists who would die. And I would ask doctors and nurses, you know, what's going on here? Uh, Why are they dying? This is such a manageable condition. And they said, you know, they're not dying from HIV. They're dying from tuberculosis. Uh, and they explained to me tuberculosis is maybe the most common opportunistic infection associated with HIV. Even if you have a very high blood cell count or, uh, sorry, white blood cell count, even if you're taking medication, um, it's not uncommon for folks to contract tuberculosis. Um, and so, you know, they were kind of saying, well, they're not dying from HIV, they're dying from tuberculosis. But then they would also tell me tuberculosis was an eminently curable condition. Right. So then I found myself very confused because I thought, well, okay, so HIV is manageable. You can live a totally normal life. That's what they're saying. On one hand, uh, tuberculosis is curable. And yet of these two, they're dying not from the incurable condition, but from the curable one. And so what's going on there? Um, You know, what what does it mean to be cured if if people either don't remain cured or they're actually getting quite sick and dying? Yeah, thank you. Sorry, I'm going to go back. Uh, I should have interrupted you sooner because I just wanted to express my excitement at uh, because serendipity plays such a big role in how we find our field sites and subjects and um, our you know research topics. And uh, even though there's more and more talk about subjectivity, positionality, we reflect more and how we are placed in the field. We talk very little about how our very sort of unique personalities draw us to very different people, different conversations, and it's not just just uh, things we like, but also things we're able to reflect on or open. Um, So it's not just that, oh, I didn't like the consultants, but what is the kind of material that you can work with, can play with? And uh, the role that sort of personality in our own sort of historical, social, intellectual biographies um, the, the, the you know the, the length to which that that sort of shapes our choices in the field is just um, it's so real, but somehow absent in 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 writing and sort of discussion there on how we come to uh, our research topics and subjects. Um, Can I just add something here? I think you're absolutely right. And I think this is also about this concern also translating into how I wrote the book, right? Because I think uh, curiosity is such an important value and it's one that we don't foreground as often as I think we should, right? We talk a lot about um, the importance of a topic, the importance of a certain set of questions, but um, and we talk a lot about positionality, mm-hmm. but part of that is also what's beyond you, right? It's not simply um, the categories you inhabit, identities, um, and the intersections at, at which you stand, but it's also about unconscious histories that draw you in certain directions and not others, right? Certain things that draw your attention for reasons you might not even realize why, yeah. um, and certain things that don't. And I tell my students this all the time, you know, if you're not interested in this, don't spend months or years of your life studying this. If you feel like there's a block, if you feel like you would rather be binge watching something, mm-hmm. it might be a good sign that this is not this topic for you. This is not your question because mm-hmm. you're not drawn to it. And so how do you kind of listen to that 
um, to your curiosity? How do you how do you listen to what is drawing your attention? And how do you come to focus on that rather than simply saying, well, this is my project. I'm just going to do it. Yeah. So, I mean, then what 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 was it that you were curious about that you would, you know, if you would stop and think um, the answer would not be sort of easily forthcoming on on the question of cure. So, I mean, of course, there is. There is, there is, of course, the joy and excitement and finding something that you can, you know, in a way that you can sort of re-angle a debate or have something new to say. And there is the excitement to find that. But what was it that you didn't know about, uh, about the question of cure? And what were you, what were you really looking for? What, what made you curious? Yeah, that's great. You know, I set myself up for that question. Um, and I, I realized as I was saying what I was saying, that perhaps I hadn't done enough introspection to really understand why I was drawn to this. You know, I think... Part of it was the puzzle, right? This kind of confusion about how a curable disease could be uncurable or not remain cured for so many. Part of it was because tuberculosis felt like an under, an underexplored or understudied topic, right? Um, if you think about um, the number of ethnographies of HIV that have been written, there's so many and so many great ones. Um, the number of ethnographies of tuberculosis you can count on one or two hands at most, right? Um, a lot of the best work on tuberculosis comes out of history because tuberculosis is seen as a disease of the past in some ways, right? Um, and so you don't have a lot of great, I mean, you do have some great ethnographies, but not a lot, not a lot of kind of monographic length books on tuberculosis. So it felt like there was, again, a space to think that wasn't kind of um, already demarcated, already bracketed out, already kind of overdetermined by a discourse. So that was part of that. It felt like there was space to actually think. Um, the other part probably has to do with, you know, in my own family, histories of chronic illness and histories of diseases that that ended up being fatal and kind of thinking about, you know, what what is this kind of fixation on cure? Um, how do we know if a cure is in fact a cure? How do we know if a disease is curable in the first place? Um, and really kind of trying to understand these things where, you know, for example, think about mental illness, right? Um, the discussion of cure in relation to mental illness is very, very complicated. You know, what con- what would constitute a cure, you know, all the way from Freud into the present is really, really hard to say. Um, what would that even mean when, in some ways, the state of your psyche is also the state of who you are as a person, right? And so to, to be cured is to cure yourself, to become someone else, right? Um, and of course, there's a question within medical anthropology is this, you know, this longstanding concern about how we come to define a cure, what it means to be cured, what it means to, to and what, what kind of a person you are after you've been cured. Are you the same person you were before you fell ill in the first place, or are you someone new entirely? And, you know, if you think about the kind of literature on shamanism, um, people like Levi-Strauss, people like Michael Tausig, and many, many others, of course, the answer is that, you know, when you come out of illness and come out of your treatment, you become someone else, right? Um, and I mean that at, at every sense, you know, psychologically, physiologically, emotionally, spiritually, you're not the same as you were, right? Cure is transformative as is illness. Um, and so I think all of these reasons drew me to think about tuberculosis, to think about cure, um, to kind of get a sense of, you know, what is this kind of strange phenomenon by which something that is curable somehow it is both curable and yet it can kill you at the same time. And how do we kind of grapple with that, that paradox? So was cure already in your mind when you were doing your field work or did that sort of angle come later? Because I mean, what I love about the book is how it um, re-angles the whole debate and we're just 
the whole book, it feels like a really tight box and it's um, where we're just dealing with curable, incurable, cured, not cured. And we're just kind of, you know, it's like a little, and the disease is, um, it's changing. So cure has to follow in curative imagination that changing. And this is all moving in time and imagination. And it's just a few pieces of the puzzle that just keep moving and switching place. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was such an intelligent and sort of such a creative decision to just work with these few things. And, you know, it keeps flipping, it keeps changing. And I was wondering if this is something that you decided to do later or were you already just working with these concepts in the field also? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, So the question of cure definitely emerged while I was doing field work and then later I was doing work in the archives. Um, But it was one amongst many. Right. I was also interested in diagnosis. I was also interested in political economy. Um, I had a series of questions while I was doing my field work in graduate school. Um, I then proceeded to do kind of more work as a postdoc. Um, and, you know, as I kept going further and further, I realized, you know, I think for all of us, we end up with so much material and it expands kind of in every possible direction. And that can be a great thing, but it can also lead to a kind of um it's such a widening scope that there's almost no center. Right. And so I began to kind of go through my materials and figure out, you know, what, what is actually my central question? And I think when I, I, so I wrote a piece for public culture, which was simply called cures. And I think that once I wrote that piece, I kind of realized, wait a second, this is not just one part of my project. This seems to be the project. This is actually the question that is driving through so much of my materials. Right. And in a way, it didn't actually involve limiting myself. Um, it actually just required me to go deeper into certain materials and leave certain things out, of course. But um, I think creating, in some ways, as a, as a thinker, as a writer, um, I think it's helpful for me to produce certain kinds of arbitrary boundaries or limits um, because those artificial boundaries or limits allow you to think deeply, allow you to kind of, cre- it creates a kind of, foundation for thought, right? Um, If you have no constraints, no boundaries, it's very, very difficult to write or to think. You can't just write from nowhere, right? I think at least. And so creating for myself this this boundary to kind of say, well, my question is, what is a cure in fact, right? This is the question I asked in that article where I'm really focused on biomedical trials, but it's actually a question that exceeds the biomedical trial. It's the question, it's a question being asked everywhere, right? In so many different forms and there's so many iterations of cure. So I thought, okay, well, if this is my question, uh, what can I learn by thinking about everything from folklore to film to, you know, looking through my ethnographic materials to turning to historical archives? Um, how does Cure come to animate all of these conversations and how is Cure kind of remade through these conversations? Yeah. Um, no, but it's amazing because you just stick with it and the whole you keep sort of turning that question over and over through the length of the book. And I feel like any book that you would have written, because Cure was already, you know, as an analytical question, it was on your mind. Any book, and even if you had structured this differently, it would have still told the story of Cure. But having tied it so strongly to the question, you know, we just go so deep into it and we keep an eye, you know, just... I didn't know there were so many ways to ask this question of what is a cure. And then you just keep adding more and more questions to it. And I thought that was amazing. But not just cure. Another great thing about the book is your decision to focus on on the bacteria. You know, the central character of this book is not the body. It is not, you know, I mean, so many great medical anthropology books, you know, they look at 
uh, they explain entire sort of kin- kinship models by looking at disease and illness, or they will talk about you know suffering and body. So they take it in different directions. But I loved your sort of very strong focus on this bacteria that's mutating and changing. And at some point, I suppose, I mean, I think um, this is this is uh, this is a quote from somebody's uh, diary that you're reading, um, where they say that it's not just the body, but the bacteria also wants to be cured. Uh, mm-hmm. So the kind of the centrality of the figure of this bacteria is um, is amazing and I was also wondering what motivated you to put that another, as another sort of analytical constraint through which of course you're telling the story of social relations and bodies and everything but uh, that tight sharp focus is uh, also so effective. Hmm. That's, that's so interesting you know I, I wouldn't have thought that the book was about bacteria and um, that you say that makes me kind of rethink, you know, I, you know, and I think, I think it has everything to do with the fact that from the late 19th century onwards, tuberculosis has been largely conceived of as a bacteriological condition, right? Um, there are, of course, a much longer history of how, how we think about disease, right? Um, prior to kind of the emergence of bacteriology and the work of people like Robert Cook, um, you know, there's a whole series of, of ways of thinking, whether they be around miasma and the environment, relationship between bodies and environments, um, you know, all manner of, of, of etiologies for thinking disease. And I think bacteria becomes so prominent from the late 19th century onwards that you're forced to grapple with it, right? Even, and I don't mean me, I don't mean that I'm forced to grapple with it. I mean that everyone I'm writing about is forced to grapple with this, right? So even if you're, say, uh, a practitioner of Ayurveda, you can't simply just go on business as usual, you have to grapple with the with the arrival of bacteriological thinking and with the kind of the tools and implements of biomedicine. You can't simply just say, well, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. You have to think to yourself, well, what do I do with the bacteria, with the germ? How do I reconcile the bacteria with um, other modes of thinking disease, other modes of thinking treatment, right? Um, how do we think about what happens to cure itself when disease is no longer conceived of in terms of vitalism or vitality, but instead in terms of bacteria? Um, and the answer is not straightforward. It's not simply a displacement. It's never simply that, okay, well, now we know it's bacteria. We don't have to worry about, you know, genealogy or, or, or kinship and how that affects disease. We don't have to worry about the environment. We don't have to worry about poverty. Of course not. But instead, bacteria comes to be sutured into those explanations, right? So you can have, you know, you can have an explanation that's both bacteriological, but also focused on the vitality of the body, right? And those two things can be merged together. Or for other folks, it was a kind of insistence that bacteria was besides the point entirely. So I talk about um, this particular doctor, David Chaurimutu, Indian doctor, who basically argued that bacteria were, in fact, not the cause of tuberculosis, but simply a symptom. They were you know, bodily cells that had, been, that had become sick because of a certain environment, because of a certain history of uh, colonization, industrialism, uh, so on and so forth, that led to the body and cells becoming ill. And so the bodily cells, which had become for him bacteria, were just as ill as the body and as the nation in some ways, right? Um, and so the question of cure had to be organized around rethinking how we organize society itself and how we kind of uh, prioritize um the kind of importance of vitality and revitalizing the body um, and, and a people. <laughs> it's interesting. How, I mean, for me, the central, the hero of the book is the bacteria, and it's. I'm, I'm quite surprised to hear that that's not how you you you. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, and the thing is, I, 
as I, I said to you before we started recording, I don't think I know what the book is about, right? And so I'm very glad to hear other people what, what what people actually read into it because I think because I try to stay so close to the materials, you know, in some ways the book is a, a composition of stories, right? It's one story after the other. It's kind of an endless parade of stories. And when I wrote the book, I was always inside of each and every story. I spent so much time just thinking about what was happening in the in these stories, in these set pieces, so on and so forth. And I think that um, because of my kind of proximity, it's hard for me to kind of see the whole in, in a strange way. I mean, I did, in fact, write the book, I think. But uh, when I when I step back, I, it's hard. Yeah, I, I can see bacteria is there in every chapter, and it, and it's it's central as an antagonist, as a protagonist, as a kind of um, you know, uh, a side character, so on and so forth. But, um, and I guess in some ways it's inevitable that a book about tuberculosis is about bacteria, but I also just, there's so many other things, right? And I think this is, um, in, you know, as a kid, I was always drawn to Russian literature. And, you know, um, if you read like a, a Dostoevsky novel, there's this kind of endless, endless kind of cast of characters. And you're always going to kind of make sure that the character you're reading about is the same one who came before. They often have different names as well, right? They're often referred to by, say, a middle name or a last name or uh, first so on and so forth. So you're always kind of unsure whether you're, you're with the same character, a different character, or someone who's changed or so on. And that's kind of how I think about, about tuberculosis and bacteria. You know, there's this kind of endless series of characters, and some of them are bacteria by other, by other names. Some of them are entirely different characters. The bacteria itself mutates along the way. Um, and so... To the extent that even the same character is the same by the end, I'm not sure, right? And so maybe that's part of why I have a hard time figuring out who is kind of at the center of the book, right? Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Actually, the book does feel like a big sort of, you know, like, you know, like a big tomb of a Russian novel and you just immerse yourself in it. And from story to story, plot to plot, character to character. And it's also like a little bit of like a chase. The the, the bacteria is changing. The cure is trying to chase after that. And then there's the author trying to chase the, the mm-hmm. you know, the cure that is chasing the bacteria. And it keeps, every, you know, everybody keeps changing positions in the book. And yes, they come back again as new characters or in a new position. Um, so that's that's quite true, and I, I I felt that sense of this kind of this frenzy that you know everything is nothing is stable, nothing is fixed. Um, so maybe maybe I should then ask my question about why. Maybe if you could um, uh, talk a little about your conceptualization of cure as not a fixed thing and not as an endpoint, um, even though the word itself, of course, suggests the end of something. But one of the key arguments in the book is that the cure is not an end and it is open and it is mutating and it is changing as uh, the, you know, as the disease is changing and how you then sort of map that onto this grid of time and imagination. So maybe if we could just hear a little uh, from you about this cure that is fragile and open and um, and mutating in time and imagination. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think in both popular everyday conversations, but also in scholarship, we tend to assume that cure is a kind of end point, right? The end to illness, the end to suffering, and the end to treatment. Um, And so it is a kind of um, a a really serious kind of finality. Um, However, what I would kind of see repeatedly in my field work, in the archives, um, you know, even in the kind of history of biomedical uh, trials is that Cure was anything but, right? You would see, you know, I would see patients, for example, who were declared cured and who would return to these clinics in India, you know, weeks, months, years later, 
who were sick again, right, who would be diagnosed with tuberculosis again, even if they finished their treatment fully, even if they did everything they were told to do. Um, you know, and I would see in the archives, I would see descriptions of patients who had been cured over and over or who were told they would require at least two to three cures in order to be cured, right? So this word itself also became a bit confusing to me because I was like, what are you saying if you're saying someone requires two cures or three cures? What kind of a cure is this? Um, at the same time, you also have, you know, around the mid 20th century, the emergence of, of certain antibiotics like streptomycin, which are taken to be these kind of magic bullets, or um, at one point they're referred to as a genie in a bottle, right? Um, that are meant to, uh, you know, that are kind of spoken of as being like, now we finally have a cure for tuberculosis. Now, the funny thing, of course, is that we've already had many cures before antibiotics, right? We had sanatoriums, we had gold therapies, we had rest cures, we had all kinds of Ayurvedic preparations. But suddenly this new cure makes it seem as if those old cures didn't exist at all, that this was uh, being spoken of as if it was incurable, and now we have a new cure on the horizon. And so this is confusing to me because I thought to myself, well, it's not so much that we suddenly have a cure, but we have a displacement of old cures by a new one. Uh, and then, you know, in the, you know, about five, six years ago, Actually, now it's been a bit longer, you have the emergence of what's called totally drug-resistant tuberculosis, where suddenly all of your cures are no longer curative, right? And so what kind of a cure is that that now stops working? And that's kind of not just the level of the body, but at the level of the population, at the level of history, right? Um, a lot of history writing, especially popular history writing about disease, often likes to write this kind of story about how a disease comes to an end, right? And tuberculosis is probably paradigmatic in this way. You know, the end of tuberculosis is often written as the arrival of antibiotics, but it's anything but, right? Instead, what you see is this kind of continue, continuing story about how you have this kind of dance in a way between antibiotics and between tuberculosis and mutation and, and the kind of huge challenges of rolling out antibiotic treatments at scale right? Not just in India, but around the world. Um, and so the question of cure is one that we see at the level of the cell, at the level of the body, um, at the level of the nation, at the level of how we write history, how we think ethnographically. Cure is there again and again and again. Um, and what I kind of came to realize at the end, it's not simply that cure is not an ending. It's not simply me saying, well, we thought it was an ending and and that was completely nonsense. No, no, of course it's, it's an ending. It's one way of thinking about ends but it's perhaps only one ending, right? Or perhaps it's actually multiple endings. So, you know, you can be cured and cured and cured. You can have end ending after ending after ending. Um, and so what was critical for me, what I kind of realized at some point was that the, the key problem is finality. You know, so we can have a cure that's an ending at least for a while, but what we might not have is finality. We might not have a cure that is an ending once and for all. Although people still come to, come to clinics in the hopes of that kind of cure. There's still a desire for a cure that isn't ending once and for all. Um, and there's still, I think that that hope also animates history writing and anthropology writing, this kind of hope for a cure that um, that is kind of going to be an ending, the hope that we can tell a story that comes to an end, right? Um, I'm not sure the book, my book ends in some ways. I don't think it can end, right? But it, it kind of ends by coming back to the beginning in some ways. Um, and I think that's because there's, there isn't an ending, or in fact, there are many, many, many endings, right? Um, and so all we can do is kind of track those endings, stay close to them, and see how we come to end over and over and over again.
Yeah. Yeah. And in this dance between curability and incurability and endings and openings, we're not moving forward in time. I mean, the whole book felt so circular to me. I felt like I could, I read it all in one go, but if I, if I was, if I'd read it over many days, I felt like I could have just returned and started reading again from any page because the whole book felt like a round circle and I could have joined and, you know, restarted from any, any bit. And so I was just wondering this, this, and of course, this is also a big point that you make in the book, that we can't think of time in this linear fashion. But is this something that um, is also how in medicine and in sort of like medical sciences, they think of um, this dance of curability and incurability as non-linear? Or is it something we only learn when we step out of the bounds of like formal rational sciences and, you know, speak to mm-hmm. folklore or speak to everyday experiences? So maybe just talk a little about that conception of time as non-linear and the circularity of uh, moving between cure and non-cure. Yeah. So, you know, I think as anthropologists, as social scientists, we often think that linear history is the problem. Linear history is somehow like a linear kind of progressivist history is a kind of secular mode of thinking history that is not true and also kind of reinforces a certain kind of idea of, you know, enlightenment modernity. Um, But in fact, there are other kind of dominant modes of thinking history that are equally perhaps troublesome, right? So the idea of recursion, the idea of return is equally kind of dangerous or worth thinking through carefully. So with tuberculosis, um, the kind of dominant narrative that appeared, say, in the 90s, early 2000s, was of the return of tuberculosis, right? Tuberculosis had returned in some way. Um, and in fact, this isn't really empirically true, right? Tuberculosis never went away in the first place. And people have written about this. People like um, the anthropologist I. Yanina Kerr, right, has written about how there's idea that tuberculosis returned in France. And she says, well, if it returned, it returned as a ghost, right? It was always kind of there haunting us. It never really kind of went in a way. Um, and so I think that we have to question both kind of linear triumphalist histories as well as question kind of histories of return or recursion. And this is why I think the book plays with these temporalities, kind of think about, you know, it's not simply that we've progressed through the history of biomedicine developed better and better cures or better and better understanding. But it's also not simply that we return to the same place. So if we're going to return, we'll return to something new or return to something old in a new way. Right. Um, and I think that's something that, so you get elements of this from the history of biomedicine. I'm talking to doctors who will tell you, you know, Oh, we're, you know, you know, some of the people I interview, for example, will tell me, you know, it's like we're back in the sanatorium era. Um, we return to the quote unquote dark ages. Um, we're returning to a pre-antibiotic past, right? And so there's a kind of ready mode of thinking history or historicity that allows for this kind of return. But I want to be as critical of that kind of narrative return as I am of kind of progressive histories of of triumph and of of medical discovery, right? So both kinds of modes of of narration require uh, careful critique, careful inspection, um, careful working through. And there's many, many more, right? We can't, it's not simply that you either have linear pro- progress or you have circularity. You have both of these things and many, many more. You Each of these things is never just one thing. Um, and this is why I think the way I, I wrote the book doesn't simply just kind of go from, you know, I could have written a book that's like, well, in the 1800s, it was like this. And then here's what happens in the 2000s, right? It could have just been an entirely straightforward history, but within the stories I tell, time itself becomes deformed and reconstituted, right? So it felt like in order to kind of think those stories seriously and to learn from them, I had to also follow their mode, which meant, you know, I couldn't just simply tell a story that began 
at the quote beginning because there is no beginning in some sense and ends at the end because there's no end or at least there's there's many ends right um the other kind of so you know the other kind of um concern i was writing against is the way in which a lot of anthropological work has what i think of as the the history chapter right there's this one chapter at the beginning of, of a book that's like this is the historical context and then we'll dive into the ethnography and theory after this. And I didn't want to do this. I didn't feel that my historical materials, whether it be oral history or archival materials, were simply background or simply context. I couldn't just relegate them to the first chapter, leave them there and say, now let's move on to what's really at, you know, at stake here. Because I wanted to take those stories as seriously as I take a kind of ethnographic encounter. I wanted to kind of say, what if we sit with this? How might... Um, something happening in 1890 really help us think carefully what's happening in 2007 or not, right? How might it stand on its own? How might a kind of history not lead to the present? You know, we talk a lot about histories of the present, um, but in fact, some histories, I think, are kind of loose threads. They just dangle. They don't necessarily lead in a coherent or clear way to the present, um, but they're still worth exploring. We can still learn from them if we kind of take them as a scene of instruction, a site that can show us something that we didn't know before about cure or help us help us open up new kinds of questions. Yeah. Um, so it has so many follow-up questions, but maybe first um, on this point of cyclicity and sort of this circularity, it's not just something that it's not an analytical point that you're making. Your informants and the, the archives that you're working with are also occupying this deformed time and they're moving back and forth. So I have a question about the element of surprise. Mm-hmm. Is every time, does every time that cure come, does it feel finite? Does it feel like the end? And when it's, you know, when it recurs or returns, is there always surprise or... I mean, how was this cyclicity and the circularity being experienced? Um, and how is every ending registered? That's a, you know, that's a great question. I think in some ways it is a surprise, right? I think there there is a kind of persistent investment in this idea of cure as final. And so it turns out not to be final. There is a kind of surprise. Um, and I say that both in terms of, say, what's going on in the 19th century, what's going on in the early 20th before antibiotics. And even now, you know, patients, I think, when they're told the treatment is over, when they're told they're cured, they really believe that it is a kind of end. Because why would you think otherwise, right? And this is where I think tuberculosis is not cancer, right? With cancer treatment, you're told that you're in remission, but you can always relapse. With tuberculosis, you're told that you are cured. And so you don't have this kind of specter hanging over you of of relapse, right? You don't you you kind of have a sense that this is the end of this treatment. This is the end of my suffering, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there is an element of surprise, but there's also a way in which the surprise gets domesticated, right? So I think about, for example, um, during the kind of late colonial era, there was a sense that British soldiers could never be permanently cured in India, right? So if a British soldier uh, came down with tuberculosis, um, there was this debate about what to do with them. And the decision was eventually that they must be sent back to Britain or somewhere to Europe or perhaps Australia, but they couldn't stay in India because if they stayed in India, no cure would actually endure or last, right? They would have to kind of, the moment they came back to India, they would fall ill again. And, you know, I have this story about a particular um, soldier who basically keeps trying to come back over and over and over again, right? He keeps trying to kind of get himself declared cured and find himself back in India somehow. And he's concerned a lot about money, about his pension, about the fact that if he doesn't work long enough, he won't have a disability pension, right? 
Um, but but at the same time, there's a sense that, of course, like you came back to India and you got sick again. This is not a surprise because at some point, the fact of cures unraveling, the fact of cures failure becomes expected, right? Um, and this is, I think, in many ways, also the story of antibiotics. We kind of know that any new antibiotic is going to eventually come up against resistance, right? Um, at some point, it'll stop working, and it'll, it might stop working by itself, or might stop working in combination. Um, but at some point, it'll reach a limit, right? And this is why the book is called "At the Limits of Cures," because cures are always coming up against new limits, right? Um, and so, this is something that I take very seriously—the way in which cures come to unravel in novel ways, right? Against these new forms of limits, whether that limit be geographic, right? Whether it's about whether a cure can endure in India or whether that, that, that limit is about antibiotic resistance, whether that limit's about time, whether that limit's about gender and gender ideas about whether, you know, a woman can in fact be cured and what that would mean for her to be cured. Mm-hmm. Um, whether it's about the kind of the nation form, nation, nation form itself and whether a nation can be cured of a disease or, or whether cure requires, like whether cure at a population level requires uh, disease uh, eradication, you know, so is it simply about the body or is it about the entire population? Is it about non-humans? Is it about kind of uh, making sure that the disease is no longer an animal reservoir so it can return back into human populations, right? So, so like, what are these various limits? Where do they stand and how do they come to um, produce a kind of opposition to cure and transform it in the process? Yeah, the, the, this comparison of uh, of uh, TB and cancer is one that st- that stayed with me, and I was I was thinking how how when um, when the temporality of cure is differently imagined in these diseases, and with cancer, I mean this uh, I mean this this element of temporal surprise is uh, is is much less, and you're prepared for you know, for the long run, how do economies of care around these two uh, two sort of different diseases, which are differently imagined in terms of curability, um, how are economies of care different for them? Mm -hmm. So when when a disease comes with a certain understanding of cure, um, social relations and, you know, other sort of life trajectories shift accordingly. Um, So how, how does that... Um, sorry, that's not very articulate. But my question oh, no, is I that think, I think I had yeah. an answer. Yeah, yeah. Um, so when you know when when these come with different um, uh, temporal imaginations of what cure um, will look like and what kind of care and for how long it will demand, um, how does it change social relations and social worlds around around the diseased person? Absolutely. You know, I think um, I think the really kind of good uh, maybe companion book to read alongside mine would be. Uh, Dwight Energy. Right? Yeah. 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 And yeah. so, you know, thinking about what is the afterlife of a treatment? What does it look like after you've been treated, whether that results in cure or remission? And um, you know, and I think so at a kind of at a kind of very um, meta level, you have the question of pharma, right? And so in general, you know, if you think about someone like Joe Dumit and his work, um, Drugs for Life, you have the sense that a disease that's chronic in some ways is a godsend for pharma, right? Because a chronic condition requires constant treatment. Um, and that means that you can keep making money. Mm. Whereas a, 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 a condition that is curable, you would think, well, this is not really worth it because once I've sold you the drugs, you've taken them, it's all over. Um, so one of the dangers, as I was writing this book, I was thinking about was, am I trying to argue simply that 
tuberculosis is a chronic condition and we've misrecognized it. And I think we'd be really careful about that framing. Um, it has been discussed as a chronic condition. You know, it is, um, it's, you know, you have, for example, um, discussions of tuberculosis as chronic yet curable, right? Which is, a, I think, a very delicious and paradoxical phrasing. You know, what does it mean to be both chronic and curable at the same time, right? But if we lean too heavily into the chronic, it can also feed into a sense that, well, this is ripe for, you know, pharmaceutical money-making. Um, of course, on the other hand, the problem is that because antibiotics have a limited shelf life, because of the possibility of, of bacterial transformation and the development of resistance, um, antibiotics are usually not the kind of greatest investment, right, for pharma companies. They have to keep developing new ones. And so it's not like a drug where you just make it once and you can kind of um, keep trying to keep your patent fresh and keep making money off mm-hmm. of it, right? It requires a lot more kind of um, R&D work. Um, so this is all to say that I think between a chronic or a condition that is that goes into remission that can be treated again mm-hmm. versus a, a condition that's actually curable in some sense, there's a different kind of pharmaceutical logic, a certain kind of different kind of economic logic. So at that level, there's, there's that going on. Um, at the level of, say, kinship of everyday life, um, there's something else, right? There's this kind of sense that with, and I think, I, I don't want to draw a sharp contrast between cancer and tuberculosis. I want to say that it's more of a spectrum, right? But there's a sense with tuberculosis that once you've come through it, you can return to life, right? You can have this sense that, um, okay, uh, you know, so um, I talk about um, this woman named Neelam who comes in with her family to get treatment and she's a school teacher. She had to stop teaching because of, of, of her illness and she's gone through so many rounds of, of treatment. And she hopes that, you know, one day, once she's finally cured once and for all, she can go back to teaching. Maybe and her, her parents hope that she can get married. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the kind of big, the kind of big desire for them is about marriage, about children, about reproduction, right. About generations. Um, for her, it's about becoming a teacher again, but working again. Um, so there's a kind of, a kind of return to a kind of ordinary life, a kind of return to um, domesticity, a return to work, a return to labor. Um, and you see threads of this kind of throughout the 19th, 20th centuries, right? You see a kind of debate about, you know, should people with tuberculosis be allowed to reproduce or will they pass on their kind of weakness, you know? So this is a very kind of, you know, it's funny because at this point people know about bacteria, but yet there's still a kind of idea of constitutional weakness, right? So if we allow somebody with tuberculosis to reproduce, will they pass on this weakness? And this is very much part of a kind of eugenicist mode of thinking, right? In the mid 20th century that leads to things like, like, you know, mass sterilization and the, the, uh, emergency right so you have uh, you have this sense that uh, or you have this long-standing sense that uh, cure and you know tuberculosis and even cure doesn't necessarily mean that one can return to life but there is still this hope for this return this idea that you know maybe if I am cured I'll be cured enough to be able to have a family but only if nobody else finds out, right? Because if other people find out, they'll think, well, this person cannot produce children or she'll pass on this kind of weakness. And this is very much a gendered story, right? Um, but you also have, you know, going further back, discussions around labor. And I've already kind of gestured towards this, this idea that, um, you know, once you're cured, you can return to work. And this is really important um, within a kind of colonial and post-colonial logic of, you know, um, you know, so for example, you'll have companies who build their own sanatoria, Right. And they'll send their employees there. So, you know, you're working in the factory, then you're sent to the sanatorium and then you come back. 
Um, and the hope is that, you know, you're cured enough to go back to work. Um, and this is actually becomes even one of the, um, the categories, right? It's not cured uh, writ large, it's cured enough to go back to work. And then you see this kind of cycle of folks who basically go from factory to sanatorium and back again, right? Back and forth, um, getting always just cured enough to return. Mm-hmm. Um, but then alongside all of this, you have this other other kind of imagination where to be cured is not to return, right? To be cured is to have a different life, right? And so in the early 20th century, you have these sanatoria who developed garden colonies um, where people who are cured are meant to live out the rest of their lives, right? Mm-hmm. The idea is that you'll never go back to the city and it's kind of patho- pathogenic influence. You'll always have to kind of live in this new environment that is going to maintain your vitality. So there's no possibility of return because the return to what was before is actually toxic to you in some ways, right? And it's toxic to all of us. Uh, so, you know, the, the kind of garden colony tied to the sanatorium becomes a model for how to reimagine society entirely, how we might rebuild cities, how we might kind of rethink the relationship between um, the urban and the rural or the urban and nature, right? Um, and so this is not a kind of simple idea of return, but this is a kind of transformation of society, of kinship, of, of labor, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so this is all to say, I think that you have multiple transformations, um, you know, some of which are premised on return, some of which are premised upon on transformation tied to this kind of temporal logic of cure as a kind of ending, right? And I think that with something like cancer, um, you do at some points have the sense that, you know, maybe, maybe if, if you're in remission long enough, you can actually return to life, right? Mm. Um, but perhaps you can't, right? Because perhaps because relapse is always kind of lurking on every corner, you have to kind of always curtail your ambition, curtail your desire, because you don't know how long you might have, right? Mm. Um, Lachlan Jane's book, I think, is another kind of interesting um, and a really kind of influential for me take on this, to kind of really think about how the the kind of receding temporality of, of, of relapse and remission come to shape life after a cancer diagnosis and cancer treatment. Mm. So is there some degree of like cruelty to the framing of tuberculosis as uh, as a curable disease? Because, I mean, just comparing with, I mean, I, I, um, I take your point that there's, there's no point comparing uh, TB and cancer as opposites, making a hard comparison, but just um, uh, the, the sense that one gets from cancer ethnographies is that cancer strikes and then you know that this is here and then you reorganize life and relations around it. But when something is framed as curable and is kind of oscillating between cure and non-cure, is there is there a cruelty to 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 sort of the language uh, that, um, that that shapes this disease and the, the implications this has for the practice and politics of hope and, you know, everyday mm-hmm. livability? Yeah, that, that, that's, a, that's a great question. Um, so, you know, um, the, the RNTCP, the uh, Revised National TB Control Program in India, they have a series of kind of slogans that they use um, across the country in different languages, uh, which basically amount to, you know, TB is an entirely curable condition. As long as you take your antibiotics, you can be totally cured. Mm-hmm. So there's a really kind of strong sense of finality attached to these slogans. And I talked to um, a, a former government official who had worked with the TB program. And I said to him, listen, you know, I, I've seen so many, pa- this was, I think, maybe early in my field work. And I said, you know, I, I don't understand this because I've seen so many patients who have, you know, done taken the medication fully and been declared cured and then they come back sick again. So, you know, what's all this about this entirely curable, totally curable disease? And he said to me, you know, I just... He said to me, you know, you know, you're probably right. And of course, it's true. A lot of people 
aren't cured or they don't stay cured, right? But, you know, it's not particularly catchy if we say TB is probably mostly curable kind of, you know? Um, and so he kind of, you know, this is very tongue in cheek. He kind of said it in terms of, you know, it's not great marketing. It's not great PR. Um, it, you know, if you, if you saw an ad saying, you know, tuberculosis is maybe treatable, it might not compel you to run to your local clinic or hospital to get treatment, right? So there's a sense of, uh, of branding, in a sense, a sense of optimism that I think is tied to this idea of cure, uh, TB is curable. But I think you're right. There's also a sense of, there's also, to my mind, a kind of cruelty, or maybe what we can think of as a kind of cruel optimism following Lauren Berlant, right? The sense that, um, you know, this thing that you're striving for might in fact be an impediment to some kind of happiness, right? Because you're so fixated on, and I think, in a way, that's a little unfair to say because, of course, who doesn't want to be cured, right? I mean, if, if you're if you're very sick, if you're suffering, if you're coughing, if you can't breathe very well, if you're weak, losing weight, um, how ridiculous would it be to say, well, you know, just live with it, right? Um, I wouldn't dare to tell someone that. And if someone chose to, to pursue cure, by all means, of course, right? Um, at the same time, if someone said, you know, I'm done with this, I'm done, I've done this so many times, I'm, I don't want to do this anymore, I'd also respect that, right? But I think at a, at a kind of meta level, um, there's a question of how we talk about it. You know, there's a question of, you know, at, at the level of, say, biomedicine or government programs or even international programs, when we kind of insist that the proper approach to disease is to cure it, um, or that's the only way, right? It's the primary way. It's about cure and about eradication. I mean, the number of times the Indian government has promised to eradicate tuberculosis in the last, you know, 60, 70 years is it's, it's you know, every time they just push it back. And of course, it's ridiculous. If you ask anybody who's actually worked in tuberculosis, no one believes in tuberculosis eradication, right? It's not a real goal, um, but it's important to say for some reason, right? It ha- it's kind of, but we continue to kind of focus on this kind of um, our, our response is so premised on a single point logic of cure. We ignore everything else. Right? We ignore, say, for example, a more social medicine approach to cure, one that may, might be organized around something like housing or transforming labor or direct monetary uh, transmissions, right? Or thinking about food or water, thinking about the conditions of life more generally, right? Um, and this was much more alive in the early 20th century. But then with the emergence of antibiotics, you have this kind of single point focus to kind of say, hey, listen, we have this kind of magic bullet, this genie in the bottle. Um, we will now focus all of our response to tuberculosis through this, right? Um, all the other possibilities for thinking about not just cure, but transformation, to think about what it means to be healthy in the first place, all of these things fall out. And what becomes the center of our story is the antibiotic. Hmm. Yeah. Um, if we can also speak about your method, and uh, this is the method of what you call juxtaposition, which is, um, of course, very, very interesting to read, and it like structures the book in this very creative and compelling way, but also it pushes your analytical point so effectively, and you know, it keeps pushing the limits of knowledge and what is cure and who is entitled to you know think about cure and where cure is located in time and imagination. So it does. Your method is you, you know it works so effectively uh, to make the central the central analytical political point of, uh, of the book. Um, so if you could maybe speak a little about your um, your uh, decision, but also how you went about putting together so many disparate sources, because which is a 
which is a sort of challenging and impressive thing to do because already the main subject of your of your book is so shifty and moving and then you've got this method which is also so unstable and moving between so many sites and places and people so you're working with just so many moving pieces and you just sort of you know kept making that more and more difficult for yourself so it's it's very impressive but i also want to hear about how you conceptualized it went about it your use of folklore your use of films your use of you know diary entries uh, people's um, you know experiences so just if you could uh, talk us through that sure um there's so many things to say about this uh you know i guess i'll start with the problem of background which i mentioned earlier um sometimes when you read an ethnography you have a strong sense that there's a a background and a foreground. You know what's in the back, you know what's in the front. Um, the back is the context, right? And the context is often either history or it's certain kind of given framings, um, the nation state, right? Or periodization, or um, in the case of India, caste, or in the case of India or Melanesia, the gift, right? We have certain kinds of uh, concepts or theories or frames that we know are when we think about a certain place or a certain topic, those are the immediate kind of go-tos, right? Um, Nesarvi Dave talks about these as sterile contexts. And she says, you know, you have a sterile context and a vitalizing context. The vitalizing context is that which opens up new questions, new avenues for thought, right? The sterilizing context is that which is taken for granted. It's what you almost expect to, to hear. You know, you read a book about... Uh, India, and you know it's going to be about X, Y, and Z, right? You just know that's what it's going to be about. You know those are going to be like the major themes because that's what you, you've come to expect. Um, that has to do with the kind of history of anthropological thinking, a history of area studies, so on and so forth. Um, so I was grappling with all of this and how to kind of resist this kind of return to the usual frames, the usual context, uh, and how to think about context more broadly without resorting to kind of background, foreground and so I thought about, you know, how do I bring all of these stories together in a serious way? And um, what I begin to think about is how every story I write about is really a story that provides a context for other stories, right? Um, so it's not that there's a foreground and a background. It's that every story is surrounded by a sea of stories, right? A kind of web, a spider's web of stories. And those other stories help you to learn how to think about or read the story that you're currently reading, right? This is also how I wrote this, right? So every story, everything I would write would then inform the next thing I was writing. Um, and so the context is pursue, uh, produced in situ through the kind of emplacement of a story in a particular place in the book, you know, what comes before, what comes after. And I really wanted to make sure the book was not one that could be read. Um, you know, on one hand, I wanted it to be readable. I wanted it to be enjoyable. My, my, my desire was that someone would actually be able to read through and, and kind of follow these stories and take some joy in that, right? On the other hand, I didn't want to be the kind of book that could be um, broken. Do you know what I mean by that? Like this idea of breaking books. Um, I can, like okay, so, title cards with like, uh, with, with like with, where every chapter is bookended. Yeah, this idea that basically you can just read the first sentence of, the, of, each, of each, the first and last sentence of every mm -hmm. chapter, and you know what the book is about, right? You can read the introduction, and it'll tell you this book is about this, and that's it, and you're done. Right. No, this book, it really yeah. feels like a tunnel. You have to go through it. <laughs> I yeah. Really, yeah, yeah, you have to get inside it and then like emerge at the other end. And that's, you know, I felt that, you know, if I'm going to write a book and spend, you know, God knows how many years doing this research and doing this writing, why would I want to write a book that basically can be a series of bullet points? 
right? Um, you know, that's, I mean, I'm sorry to be so dramatic about it, but I, I, you know, I didn't want a book that, I mean, not to say that I wanted to be deliberately difficult or obfuscating. I wanted to be clear. I wanted to be readable, but I also wanted to be a book that the details matter, right? The stories matter. It's not simply about what is the, um, what is the big theoretical thing you pull out? You know, I don't think this book, I don't think I made up any words in this book. There are no neologisms, right? There's no sense that, you know, the grand theory is that, uh, you know, some word, uh, cura, cura politics or something, right? There's nothing like that here. Um, because I really wanted people to, to work through, grapple with the stories, to move from story to story, to kind of learn what they could to draw from it, right? Not simply just to kind of say, well, here's the, here's my theoretical nugget. I can then go and, and, uh, cite this when I'm talking about anything else. Right. Um, but I think in some ways, you know, I understand the kind of facility and the kind of usefulness of being able to draw a theory from one place, take it to another. But at the same time, sometimes it happens too easily, right? We can, we all too easily say, talk about biopolitics, right? In every context imaginable, uh, yet biopolitics emerges in a very specific kind of historical formation and a particular kind of um, history of thought. It doesn't just simply travel with ease. It shouldn't, I don't think, right? Um, this is why there's no biopolitics in this book, right? It's not, I mean, there is, but there's not, right? Um, because I wanted folks to kind of stay close, to kind of read, you know, to, to in the same way that I did, I want them to fall into these stories and to come out through the other end, right? To kind of work through it rather than simply be able to say, well, here's what this book is about. Here's the takeaway. Um, you know, what kind of influence for me, which is a kind of bad influence, and I, I know it's um, a lot of people, whoever's listening, um, might not like this, is Frazier's The Golden Bough, right? Um, the Golden Bough is this like tremendously long, um, seemingly in some ways pointless avalanche of stories, right? But the stories themselves are compelling and interesting, right? Um, and, you know, uh, Fraser's just drawing from here and there and everywhere, right? All these kind of ethnographic facts, you might say. Um, but I think that there's something really interesting about this collage, this kind of um, what I'm thinking more and more about as juxtaposition, you know, um, what happens when you, when uh, your reading of a story is dependent upon the stories that encircle it, right? How do we kind of think about that as a form of theory production that's very grounded, uh, but also allows for maybe uh, a greater sense of how an idea emerges from a specific place in time or from a particular story rather than just being one that has no tethering, right? That has no kind of uh, lo locatedness, right? Um, yeah, maybe, uh, maybe I'll, I'll, I could talk about exposition for a long time, but maybe I'll... Mm -hmm. I'll no, you know, I'm just, just as I was talking, I was thinking of like all these stories that are just holding hands and, you know, or like stories that are growing on stories. And I was thinking maybe I should try reading this book backwards. And I think that will work just as well, mm. just, you know, uh, working from the back. But of course, uh, about stories, there's one delightful story of the moon as the first patient of tuberculosis. And I was wondering if you want to tell us that story. And it'll be so nice to sort of hear it um, and not just read it. Sure. Yeah. Um, should I just tell the story or should I read the story from the book? Um, as you like it. I mean, you can also just uh, uh, tell it to us. Okay. So the story is basically, it's the, it's the story that begins chapter four. And, you know, every chapter in the book begins with a kind of piece of apocrypha or folklore or something that wouldn't necessarily make it into a piece of ethnography. Uh, but I felt like this story really, this story for me opened up so many questions, I think really helped me think a lot about what it means to be cured. Um, and it's a story I found uh, initially 
I mean, you, story, you see the story everywhere, actually, but I found it initially in an Ayurvedic kind of recipe book that had kind of cures for tuberculosis. And it talks about, you know, the, the very first patient, the very the patient zero, right, who was the moon. Um, so the moon Chandran uh, was once, you know, fully luminous and had no, it never waxed or waned. It was, you know, always, he was always kind of entirely full and shining. Um, he then was married off to the 27 daughters of Daksha Prajapati, who's the Lord of all creatures. Um, despite having 27 wives, he was really drawn to one specifically Rohini. Um, and in his kind of passion or lust, he completely forgot about the other sisters. Uh, they were quite upset by this neglect and they went to their father and said, you know, how could you marry us to this man who basically ignores us, who's entirely focused on this one, on, on only one of your daughters. So Daksha in his fury cast a curse on Chandan, right? Um, the curse would, that would be that he would, he would wane, he would lose his luminosity, you know, up until death. Um, this was kind of his fury made manifest in Chandran's lunar body. Um, at this point, you know, all of the creatures of earth, the other gods all come to Dakshan and say, you know, please, please, please take back this curse. You know, the moon is central. The moon's light is central to life on earth. Without this light, everything will die. All of the creatures of earth, so on and so forth. Um, and so Dakshan says, you know, a curse once uttered can never be taken back. Right. So, you know, my word is truth. My word is force in the world. I can't simply just take it back. It's not how things work. It's not how language works, right? So in a way, this is a kind of theory of language. Is also a kind of theory of physics, I think, you know? And But he says, you know, I can't take it back, but I can, I can add. I can say something else. So he says, you know, um, the moon will wane, but the moon will also wax, right? Um, and so this, in a way, is... Not only, you know, so, and then Daksha becomes, or sorry, uh, Chandran becomes kind of figured as the primordial victim of tuberculosis, right? And his curse is kind of um, sent down to the humans on earth as well. Um, and on one hand, you know, it's, it's a really interesting story because uh, the idea of cure that emerges from the story is not one of, of return to a pre-disease state, right? It's not that the curse is annulled. The curse remains in place. The moon continues to wax and wane, right? But uh, what the cure entails is this kind of transientness, this idea that you will wax, but you will also, um, sorry, you will wane, but you'll also wax again. The moon will always kind of return back and forth. Um, and, you know, I was thinking about these patients I see who continuously come in, who, who are cured and then uncured and cured again. This kind of, um, this kind of uh, cyclical nature of cure felt like it was perfectly exemplified in the story of the moon, right? Um, at the same time, the story is constantly kind of evoked to demonstrate, you know, in some ways that Ayurveda, the Indian medicine, had always had some sort of knowledge of tuberculosis that, you know, as a wasting disease, you know, we've, we've always had this look at this story of the moon that kind of shows you that this has been, you know, deep with, within our, our kind of compendium of stories, right? Um, and so, you know, this story, I just think, and there's, you know, there's many, many versions of the story as well. And some have different ideas around what exactly cures the moon or why the cure got, why the moon got ill and so on and so forth. But I think it's just such a, a powerful story, both in its re repeated invocation in a contemporary moment, but also in that, you know, it really does show us a model for cure that is entirely different from one where you have a kind of final ending once and for all. Um, and it's a different idea of cure and that one is, what it means to be cured is to live with one's illness in some sense, never be completely over it, but to always kind of live with it, to always kind of have a, have a waning uh, alongside your waxing. 
Yeah, and then you, of course, make that wonderful point that our experience of cure is our experience of time. Mm-hmm. And that, that um, you know, that it's so evocative, thinking of, like, clocking time um, through our experience of cure. Um, I have another question about uh, methodology. Because the sort of central subject of what you are studying is, is appearing and disappearing, it's waxing and waning, mm-hmm. as you're combing through history, as you're looking through archives, you're looking through stories, are there periods, I mean, are, you, are there periods of silences when, you know, it it is it is it has disappeared. It has been cured, and then it appears again. I mean, it's not a stable subject. Mm-hmm. And um, so, how do you find something that's also disappearing in in history? That's you know, waxing and waning in in the records, in the archives, in the stories. Yeah, you know, the funny thing is, tuberculosis itself never disappears, right? It's always kind of there. Um, I mean, wait. So I should kind of the caveat here is that, of course, there's a series of different words used for tuberculosis, right? Um, things like uh, in, you know, um, in biomedicine, uh, pathesis or consumption, right? Um, in, you know, in Indian languages, you have like kasnoi, shairogam, so on and so forth. And this opens up a series of problems around translation and around translatability. But when I was doing my research, I was open to kind of exploring widely, right? I wasn't necessarily the kind of the act of narrowing happened after the fact, right? Um, but I think in the field, in the archives, I was open to kind of saying, well, let, let me look broadly. So, you know, at some point I was looking into histories of x-rays, right? Um, because x-rays are an important kind of diagnostic technology for tuberculosis for the last hundred years or so. And so that meant that I went down a rabbit hole to kind of study x-rays. Um, at one point I was interested in gardens because of these garden colonies and, and sanatorium. So I started researching the history of gardens in India and there's a very, very long footnote on gardening, right? Um, which I think is, you know, uh, I, I love I love those kinds of um, rabbit holes, but I think that, um, in a sense, the kind of the crawling of the story uh, into one about tuberculosis and cure kind of happens later, right? It happened later for me. But there are kind of, I guess, if you're talking about archival silences, um, you know, one of the most challenging periods and the period that appears maybe the least fleshed out in my book is the post-independence period. Um, there's a lot of I mean, not the, not immediately post-independence, but say like um, 70s, 80s, 90s, um, those decades, a lot of those materials, at least um, when it comes to what was happening at the government level, they're in specific government offices, right? Um, so TB-related labs and facilities where it was incredibly difficult to get access to. So um, there's one, <laughs> I'm not sure how much detail I should go into, but there's one particular office in Bangalore that I spent years trying to get into. And I mistakenly, you know, um, I talked to the wrong bureaucrat. You know, I talked to somebody who I thought was high enough that he can get me permission. And he, did, he gave me permission, but then the person who was in charge of that facility hated this person. And so I had cut myself off inadvertently by going to the wrong person. And I couldn't have possibly known this, right? So I met with a lot of people who worked at that facility, uh, but I could never get into those archives. And I, I learned later on that there was a lot of protectiveness around these archives because the sense was that anybody who wants to come in and see all these materials must have bad intentions. They must want to write a kind of critical something critical history of, of the failures of India's TB program. So why would we let you in to come write bad things about us? Right. Um, so there's been a couple of historians who have gotten access to this um, in an earlier moment, but I kind of repeatedly failed. That was my limit, right? Uh, that was my limit to kind of, and so I, 
I think about, you know, there could have been an entire different chapter or a, a different set of things if you were looking at the kind of difficulties of, of, of the kind of post-independence moment and the kind of bureaucratic entanglements and the kind of movement. You know, this, this is why, for example, the Indian program is called the Revised National TV Program because the initial program was seen to be, was, you know, um, evaluated and thought to be failing in many ways. So I had to revise it. Right. Um, but I will say, so the, uh, Niels Brimness, who's a historian, wrote this lovely book, which actually has access to those those files. Right. So his book, in a way, to my mind, is another kind of compliment to mine. Right. Because he's able to to access that, which I couldn't. Um, and I think, you know, there's always going to be limits to what we can do. There's always a point at which, you know, we say, OK, enough's enough. You know, as you kind of said, this book goes back and forth between cure and incurability and stays with that you know, for a few hundred pages. And at some point I felt like I've, I think I've told, I've exhausted the story enough, right? I've exhausted myself and the story, probably probably the the reader as well, you know? And that felt like, okay, there could be more, there could be more. I mean, there, there are definitely more stories, right? But um, I think I've done enough to kind of move the reader through the kind of complexities of cure. So then a final question, what are you sort of moving on to now and what are you, what, what, what stories are you exploring and what are you, what are you doing now? What have you moved to? Yeah, that's a, it's a good question. Um, so I, after finishing this book, I moved to UCLA where I'm um, part of this um, assemblage of scholars, including biologists, chemists, sociologists, bioethicists, historians, um, which is called the Institute for Society and Genetics. And we're this kind of very strange hodgepodge group of folks who study problems that are at the kind of interface of biology and society. Um, and what that, what all that means is that when it comes to discipline, areas, area formations, um, these kinds of things go out the window to some extent. And there's a kind of openness to, to exploring both topically and um, methodologically new kinds of questions, the emergent questions, right? So I've been kind of struggling with this freedom, you know, as someone who's trained as an area studies scholar, someone who's trained as an cultural anthropologist, um, you know, what do you do with freedom, right? And and how does, you know, as I said to you earlier on, um, I think creating boundaries for oneself is a really helpful way to begin to ask new questions, begin to think. And so when presented with freedom, I, of course, I panicked um, because I wasn't sure where the boundaries were anymore, right? I had lost the kind of, the kind of, um, the kind of safe context, the kind of safe uh, postings, you know, of knowing I work in South Asia, I work in a particular part of South Asia, I work in this particular mode, I work on these kinds of questions. Um, so this is all kind of a long preamble to say that my new work is actually about heat, um, very broadly construed. And because of the pandemic, I've had to kind of rethink this numerous times. But what I'm really interested in is how we experience heat, right? So what does, uh, you know, it's a kind of very difficult feeling or sensation to describe it's described many different ways um and it's not always the same thing um so how do we actually talk about think about theorize heat and what are the appropriate sites and methods for doing that so is it ethnography is it archival work um should i be talking to quote-unquote ordinary people whoever that is or should i be talking to say physicists or chemists or um you know so during the pandemic i've been looking a lot at digital archives available here in the United States, as well as those available, you know, in the UK or India. Um, I started writing about the history of mannequins, um, these specific kinds of mannequins spelled with a K rather than a Q that were built in the early 20th century to actually experience heat. 
So if you think about crash, crash, test, crash test dummies, you know, those dummies you put inside of a, a car or a jet to kind of see how they experience a collision. It's a similar kind of thing. These are meant to actually experience heat in our place. They're kind of surrogates of humans um, because you don't want to necessarily put a human being into, say, a very hot room and say, you know, how are you going to do? Um, and so much of our, our, our heat science is built on this idea of, of, of thermal experience that comes from a mannequin, a kind of crash test dummy, if you will, right? Um, at the same time, we still have our own personal experiences of heat that are shaped by culture, society, the environment, history, so on and so forth, the built environment. Um, so yeah, the project itself then is very broadly kind of looking at the experience of heat, but not just the human experience, also experience as it comes to be uh, transformed by, say, measures and metrics as it comes to be understood by scientists as it comes to be built into mannequin bodies as it gets to be kind of sutured into our physical environments through the use of say concrete or asphalt or certain kinds of building um and you know a lot of this comes out of my own you know when you do field work in south asia you often experience heat right and you often ignore it to be honest right you either you ignore it because you have to go and do some interview or you, or do some field work or you schedule around it, right? You know, hospitals would be closed maybe during the middle of the day. So you have to go early in the morning or late in the evening. But, you know, despite the fact that heat is always there, I never really made it explicit, right? I think maybe there are some points in the book where heat kind of peeks through, but it's not really central to my, to my book, right? Um, I thought to myself, you know, it's so strange that this kind of overwhelming experience of heat that I was living with while doing my research um, gets so ignored and is maybe it's because I think of heat as something epiphenomenal. It's like gravity. You don't write an ethnography of gravity. I mean, you could maybe, right. But, uh, I kind of have been thinking, how do I really come to address and think about this kind of nebulous, um, phenomenon or experience or sensation, this thing that we call heat, what is this? Right. Um, so in a way I think I have now, I mean, you could, I guess maybe what's changed is that cure has become heat. And so the question is, what kinds of stories do I need to look at? Um, what kinds of um, methods will I have to develop in order to to understand this very kind of nebulous and, and kind of complex object? Uh, but thank you so much for taking our time to speak with me. I loved your book and I, I love that I had the opportunity to just get on a call with you and ask you questions about it and hear more from you. Um, so thank you very much. This was really wonderful. Thank you. It's been it's been entirely my pleasure.